Thank you for singing. You may be seated. That's a great song that uh, also emphasizes the natural transition in the book of Hebrews. The next uh, two chapters, 8 through 10, really emphasize that we have, a, we have a better covenant because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And uh, this last sermon that I have uh, this morning comes from the last future cha- uh, verses of chapter 7 of Hebrews. I invite you to turn with me there, Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, and before I read the text, I just want to say, too, um, I was at a missionary uh, board meeting. Uh, we, I participate in a mission board uh, called Fellowship International Mission. It is not a huge board, but it's been growing lately. Uh, we have about 125 to 30 uh, missionary units, uh, couples and families uh, throughout the world that we service, and uh, it was really helpful to uh, get together with some of the pastors that also serve on that mission board, and also some Christian businessmen as well who have a passion for missions, and uh, I was uh, trying to be careful about uh, the benefit that I had received from you all of a sabbatical. Uh, there was a lot of jealousy out there. And I just wanted to, again, reiterate what a blessing it was to me to be able to have that time. There are other pastors who uh, have not always had that benefit and opportunity. And so I I recognize that. And again, I wanted to say thank you again. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20. Please follow along as I read. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He had no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Lord, as we look into this text this morning, may we see the beauty of of who you are to us. May it fill our hearts with a hope and a joy, a vibrancy. Help us to, to really appreciate the depth uh, that is involved in our salvation Help us to know that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so, Father, thank you for 
uh, foreknowing, for planning, and executing so great a salvation for us. So help us now as we think on this text. In your name we pray, amen. Now, when I was about 12 years old, uh, our family got the first computer. Does anyone remember back to the mid-80s? It was a uh, IBM 386. It wasn't a 286. It was a 386, and it had MS-DOS. Now, I also remember when we got our first version of Windows, you had to boot up, and then you had to run the boot disk for Windows. It was pretty slick stuff back in 1986, 1988. It was amazing technology. But what we did notice that with the rapid change in technology, there it is right there. When the rapid change in technology has occurred, um, very quickly, older technology becomes outdated, right? It becomes, what, what was the word? Incompatible hate that word. But we had to find ways to make older technology compatible again. And so when any new piece of technology comes, that creates a whole new market for adapters, right, to help make the old work with the new. And this is the way it goes. And I think we could probably regale ourselves with all kinds of like newfangled technology that we experienced and the frustrations of trying to make them compatible. Uh, But if you don't relate on the computer level, that's okay. Uh, I remember my grandfather um, on his dairy farm uh, when uh, a a piece of equipment broke and he couldn't afford the whole new system, he had to engineer a way to make it keep working. And so this, this happens in all modes of life in which we have to find ways to make things compatible. Now, in the scripture reading that we read, actually we heard read by Dave, there was a description of an old system, an old, if you will, technology of way of relating to God. And since Christ has come, it has created a radical change that no adapter, no system of adapting can fix for us. Sometimes when you have new technology, it's better to just like, just take the old and throw it out into the garbage, right? And there's a sense in which this is true in the new covenant that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. New relationship patterns are now for us in Jesus Christ. And so it's important for us to see the argumentation of the writer here. He's telling us that the new covenant is infinitely better than the old. And so this morning we're going to be thinking upon those betters, if you will. What is it that makes it better? And there are three reasons that we're going to look at this morning as to why it is infinitely better than the old. And so the first reason this morning is that it is sealed by God's oath. It is sealed by God's oath. Look with me at verse 20 to 22. Uh, I find this this, uh, reasoning uh, that The new is better uh, because it is sealed with God's oath. And I'm looking at my text, and I see in the middle in verse 21 this quotation from the Old Testament. It is a quotation, yes, from the Old Covenant, which promised a better and new covenant. 
And in this text, we read that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And he says, here's the actual oath. You, that is the son of David, are a priest forever. Now, notice the parallel construction you see in the first line. The Lord has sworn. Now, for emphasis in the middle, it describes that it's not gonna, she's not going to change. That's the, 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 the strength of this promise. And then you have the, what he actually swore in the last line, that you are a priest forever. Now, how is it, and what does it mean that God would swear an oath? What does it mean for God to swear an oath? It's not how it is when we swear an oath of commitment. There is always the remote possibility that we will not keep our word. When God makes an oath, he, it's a, a decree. It is a decree that necessarily will come to pass. In other words, it's irrevocable. It's impossible for God to break his word when he has declared what he intends to do. Now, there are three important points of observation that I want to draw out of this truth that when God swears an oath, it's impossible. We need to realize, first of all, that God is free. God is absolutely free to execute eternal judgments on sinners. God is free, and I'm going to explain how I arrive at this, but I want to share a little illustration, uh, some this sometime this week, I had been doing some reading about public hangings in America. Historically, there have been few and far between within the history of our country. So when a person in the early days was condemned to death by hanging, it actually created quite a crowd. In fact, it was very customary at a public hanging in the 1770s to have some preacher stand up and give an execution sermon. That was shocking as I read that. I don't know if I would have the nerve to give that kind of a sermon. Uh, in fact, I was reading about an account of an Indian man who was hung in New Haven, Connecticut. And in that occasion, the preacher preached from this text, not the text here in front of us, but this one, Psalm 55, verse 23, in which it says, But thou, O God, shall bring them down into the pit of destruction. Bloody and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Now, I was struck as I was reading actually this sermon for this occasion, how straightforward the sermon was on the doctrine of sin, doctrine of hell, and eternal punishment. He even went into great detail about the torments that, that the human conscience will, will bring upon a person when they're in eternal torments. Now, in the midst of the sermon, the author makes this very valid point that God is free to execute judgment. He says, if the sinner rises up against and casts off God, is it unjust in God's part to cast off sinners? And I had to think to myself, absolutely not. It is completely just of God to 
to send away those who are in adversarial relationship to him. I want, and the reason I brought this up, and I think it's important for us to see this, turn back with me to chapter 3 of Hebrews, where we see another oath in which God decrees the carrying out of judgment against sinners. God is absolutely free to do this. And in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, we have been through this text prior, but we see a quotation from the book of Psalms, and it starts in chapter 3, verse 7. And he talks to the people and says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, do you hear that? There is a decree, an oath of God here to execute judgment. He says, they shall not enter into my rest. If God is free to decree eternal judgment, I think it's important for us to realize then on the other side that God is free to be merciful to whom he will be merciful. This is the other side of God's freedom. He is free to execute judgment. He is also free to establish relationship and extend mercy to sinners. You know, as straightforward as that sermon I read was about sin and hell and eternal punishment, I was pleased. I was actually getting very nervous. I was on the second point of the sermon. I thought, boy, when are you going to get to some hope? And there it was, the third point. He pointed to the reality that there is a foundation of hope in Jesus Christ. And in that last verse of Psalm 55, he says, but I will trust in thee. I will trust in thee, the one who makes covenant, the one who keeps his word, the one who extends mercy. And why I bring this up is really what we're seeing now in chapter 7 is that God is executing an oath of mercy in Jesus Christ. God is absolutely free to execute judgment against sinners, but he is also free to be merciful to whom he will, be mer- to who, to whom he will show mercy. See, the truth that is implied, let's go back to chapter 7 now. God has sworn he will not change his mind He has established a high priest forever. The truth that's implied in this decree is that God was planning to set up a new system of relationship with him. So by taking on human sinfulness, the sinful human, the the human nature that was like affected by the conditions of the world, God in that moment in the incarnation produced a new relationship with humanity. God was absolutely free in in this action. God is absolutely free to decree eternal judgment with the children in the wilderness. How much more, I think, is how we should be realizing this, is he free to provide grace and mercy? You remember the wilderness generation? How many entered into the land? Who went into the land? 
There were two. What were their names? Joshua and Caleb. God chose to be merciful to those. He, he didn't have to, he had planned to create an execution of, of that whole generation, but he, he allowed those who responded to him in faith to enter into the land. God is absolutely free to, on the one hand, execute, but also free to extend mercy as well. Now, the third point here that I think that we should realize in this, this swearing of an oath is that God is free to have all the glory in this new arrangement, in this new covenant that he's establishing, in this new, this new way of carrying out relationship with him. Now, I want us to see in verse 22 that this oath makes Jesus, it says, the guarantor of a better covenant. The guarantor of a better covenant. Now, I think the King James uses the word surety there, and that's a very helpful word. Surety is probably, though, an older word they're less familiar with, unless you're in, in law. Um, you would perhaps have an understanding that it signifies like a bond or a... Um, a piece of collateral to a material guarantee that a debt or a promise will be made good upon. It's actually a very weighty word, this word guarantor, because um, I think we're more familiar, and even Jeremy, when he prayed, I was listening, he was using the language of the mediator, that, that God sends Jesus to mediate between the Father and sinful man, but this is a different word that speaks to um, not someone stepping in between the gap, but actually guaranteeing the weaker party of ensuring that the covenant relationship will be carried out faithfully. You see, when, when Jesus took upon human flesh, he was fully human, but he was still fully God. And his divinity guaranteed the faithfulness of his life, but it also guaranteed for us who are weak so that the agreement between God and man would be kept. Now, the word guarantor goes back to the ancient practice of a covenant ceremony, and, I, and I, we need to understand these details. It's kind of like when you become a Christian... You can come to know Jesus Christ on a very basic level, and we praise God that the gospel is very simple. But as we grow in our understanding of the gospel, we need to take on an acquaintance with, with the full language that the Bible uses to describe our salvation. And the word guarantor describes an, the ancient practice of the covenant ceremony. If you're unfamiliar with it, I'll try my best to just briefly describe it without grossing you out. A covenant ceremony occurred when animals were slaughtered and cut into two pieces. They were laid out before two parties who were coming into agreement. And as a, signif a signifying of the fact that, that they will agree to keep covenant with one another, they both pass through those animals, and it becomes a sign that if either party breaks this covenant, that they will become like these animals who are broken up into pieces. It's pretty, pretty graphic, isn't it? 
Abraham made such a covenant with God, but rather actually God made that covenant with him. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 15, in which through a vision, he saw the ceremonial pieces being laid out upon the ground, and Abraham did not get up out of his sleep and walk between these animals. What he observed was God walking between the animals for him. That's a very significant communication. In that moment, God was describing how he was going to guarantee the agreement for both of them. How can we make agreements with God who is perfect? We are necessarily going to fail and fall. And God is free to take all the glory in this arrangement, in this new covenant, and he does, throw, does so through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, if you will, was torn apart and laid bare upon that cross. He was torn apart so that you wouldn't have to. And so he, through his self-sacrifice, guarantees the covenant for both parties, for God and also humanity. See, all that we have in this relationship now in what's called the new covenant is a faith look. We simply look at this arrangement and say, I am grateful for it. I am thankful for it. And so we are saved by faith alone. We, we are justified, if you will, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We rest in what he has done for us. That's where saving faith comes. And God gets all the glory in that arrangement. He's free in this oath that he makes to structure it that way. So, again, an old technology that just needs to be tossed aside. It does no value. It has the old system in which we bring sacrifices to a temple is no longer needed. And thank God they're not needed. We can't possibly keep covenant with God. Praise God, he keeps covenant for us. So that's the significant, that's the lion's share of this message in this this needing to understand that God is absolutely free here to set the terms of this new relationship, and he, he sealed it with his oath. But the second point here in verse 23 to 25 is that he also secured it. He didn't just seal it. He secured it by, God, by God's Son. Now, let's just look at those verses again. Uh, verse 23, it says, The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. There's a few words there that are key, helpful to interpret this section. The first of those phrases is the words, holds his priesthood permanently. It's forever. It's permanent. And then he emphasizes the permanence, and he says it continues forever. And then in verse 25, he uses a phrase, a word, the word uttermost. 
That word uttermost literally means complete and affecting all. I don't know how more emphatic the writer here could be regarding the permanency of this, this new arrangement. It's, it's now uh, completely secured by God's Son. Now, there is a strong necessity in that word uttermost, which is occurring because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think last Sunday we talked about how uh, when Jesus, who is all life, enters into the realm of death and creates this conflict, what necessarily has to happen is the undoing of death itself. And this is what's implied. There's, there's a strong necessity that occurs here through Jesus. It's a strong necessity that has to come to completion, just like the law of gravity. I mean, gravity is something that we take for granted. Thank the Lord we have gravity, though. Although as we age, I'm sure we'd like it less. But otherwise, it's a fundamental law of reality. And that's what the writer here is saying, that there is a strong necessity that that the outcomes of the resurrection have to come to pass. And what are those two necessities? He gives a description of them. The first one is total salvation. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw. Able to save. Remember, all power on heaven and earth was given to Jesus Christ. He said that to his disciples. Nothing can pluck us out of his hand. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. God's effect in salvation is total. But I know that we don't see ourselves as fully cleansed. It is a process that has begun, and the result will result in a total salvation. The second necessity that is generated through the Son is an effectual intercession. You see that at the end of verse uh, 26, I believe there, 25, it says, uh, since he always lives, there's again another emphatic, always lives to make intercession for them. Who's the them? Those who are in this new covenant relationship with God. An effectual intercession. You know, the priesthood of Jesus Christ is so completing, so affecting. We can have all the confidence that Jesus is continually making intercession for us on, his, on our behalf. Jesus' blood intercedes for us. I love the Charles Wesley hymn, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. There is an an effectual, a, a, a completing intercession. Jesus is standing before the throne praying for us. That's a powerful intercession. 
We don't need inter intermediaries between the Son and the Father. The Son himself is pleading for us with his blood. And he names us as his own. That's a guarantee that we will be saved to the uttermost. What a blessing that is. Now the third uh, piece here in the third reason that the new covenant is infinitely better than the old is that it's sufficient by God's design. It is sufficient by God's design. Now in the last uh, few verses, we have a description of the high priest, Jesus, as being holy, innocent, unstained. He has not need to kind of purify himself. He's innate, naturally pure already. There is this description, too, that the, the Old Testament priesthood would die. You'd have a priest that might live 50 years, but then there would be a death, and then there would have to be a new high priest that would come in. Historians in the first century calculated that uh, by the time the, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed, there had been 83 high priests since the day of Aaron. 83 high priests. You see, in the old covenant system, human priests you know, were limited. They were sinful. They had um, inability to continue on forever. Jesus, on the other hand, is described as holy. That word holy means devout. It's actually a different word than the traditional word that we see when we see the word holy in our Bibles. It it's, means faithful to covenant. Covenant relationship with God. He's innocent. He's unstained. You couldn't ask for a better high priest. And Jesus remains sufficient. Now, look at the last phrase in verse 28. It describes Jesus very uniquely here, and it might catch us a little bit by surprise. It says that this one who's appointed, he appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Been made perfect forever. Wait a second, I, I thought Jesus was already perfect. What does this mean? He was made perfect. I think there's opportunity for encouragement here for us in this little description. But this, this actually describes the whole mission to redeem fallen humanity. You see, Jesus' redemption started not at the cross. It actually started with the incarnation. It started in that miraculous conception. It was the birth in the manger. It was God's work of salvation through him in his earthly ministry. And as he lived with sinful human beings, he endured trials. Even in the conception, you know, there were people that doubted, even Joseph himself doubted the authenticity. That in itself is an aspect of trial. Yet all through, even, even Herod sending the, the mercenaries out to kill the, the children in Bethlehem, all of this was resistance and trial. And even when Christ arose from the grave, there were people who stood around and doubted. 
Jesus was unstained. He endured. Until the day, as verse 26 said, he was separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Jesus, the Son, entered into the throne room. He took a seat at the right hand of God. And in that moment, the decree was articulated again. You are now a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But the suffering that he experienced that began at conception was part of the perfecting process so that he would be the guarantor of a better covenant for us. See, the trials that Jesus experienced demonstrated a faithfulness to his heavenly Father so that the Father would look upon his blood and say, yes, it is worthy. It is beautiful in my sight. And therefore, it can be applied to all who put their faith and trust in that blood. So there's encouragement here, too. Yes, we have a, definitely we have a a sufficient sacrifice. But do you note that the trials that the Son of God endured in person created a, a completeness, And Jesus, the Son of God, set the pattern of how all others would experience salvation. We often belittle trials and sufferings in this life. I know we we quote James chapter 1, count it all joy when you enter into trials and difficulties. But the truth is, It's a demonstration of the perfecting process in your own life. If you fall and repeatedly fall and you fall away, you can't take confidence in the fact that you are born again. But when you endure like Christ and you're following after him and you take up your cross daily and you follow him, you are experiencing what Christ experienced. The Holy Spirit is moving within your life to pick you up off the ground again. To cause you to experience the perfect salvation of Christ. Sorry. I don't have my mic set on today. It is common in our human experience to value the path of least ex- the least resistance. I know that there are natural laws that demonstrate that to be the case, like electricity, right? Finds the least path of existence, and you better ground yourself because you might be the least resisting factor. Cars are engineered aerodynamically to go faster with less resistance, right? Water always travels around a mountain. It doesn't go over the mountain. It goes around the mountain. And frankly, in our fallen condition, it's easier for people to take the path of least resistance. But that's not what God has called us to as followers of Jesus Christ. We don't need to be belligerent to people around us. But we need to endure with people around us. 
We need to consider the claims of our culture and recognize that they're not calling us to follow Jesus Christ. The fears of our culture are not oriented to following Christ. In following the commandments of Christ, we may have to endure trial and suffer persecution. That's a part of the perfecting nature of the salvation that God has established with us. We should not look at it as anything less than joyful. This means that if Jesus was made perfect for us, whatever resistance to the flesh or cultural assumptions that are in and around us that we have to resist, we also are becoming perfect in God's eyes. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw to God through him. Again, I need to reiterate the point. Our culture does not want us to draw near to God. There are so many voices that are trying to pull us away from Christ. Don't be surprised. It happened to your Savior too. And so by resisting any urge of the flesh, we actually have the opportunity to enter into a deeper fellowship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Closer fellowship with the Father. You see, the old way of relating to, to God is over. We don't bring a sacrifice and try to merit a right standing or to turn away God's wrath anymore. That's, that's done. The wrath has already been removed through Jesus Christ. And so... It's infinitely better. It's, it's secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been, it's sealed with God's oath. It's secured by God's Son. And it is sufficient by God's decree. So what do you do with this message today? What are you going to do with it? I'd encourage you to take some time to really meditate on the, the beauty of Jesus Christ. Evaluate the messaging that you hear around you, even your own impulses as a fallen, sinful being. Take time to, to evaluate the kinds of influences, the ungodly influences that around us. But choose to draw closer to Christ. Put away some of these things that are causing us to be distracted from the beauties of Christ. And ultimately, what you are doing is you are choosing to say that God's new covenant with me is better. It's better. And being faithful to Christ, loving Christ, is not dependent upon our ability. We can turn to Christ and remember that he saves us totally. He intercedes for us and will not slip away. That's encouragement to grow. That's encouragement to stand. Let's pray.